Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Guys, today I'm here with Dr. John Bender, who is a family physician from Fort Collins, Colorado. He is on the board of the American Academy of Family Physicians. And we met at a conference uh, hosted by Hint Health and hit it off right away. And John was coming through Las Vegas. Yes. And I said, come be on the show and let's talk about how we're gonna fix, transform. We were talking about the fix is the wrong word. It's just blow up primary care and reinvent it in a way that's actually gonna be health 3.0 plus. It might even be health 4.0. Welcome to the show, John. Excellent, thank you so much. I really appreciate being here and, uh, and having time for me. So there is so much change going on in primary care. I'm, I'm gonna start with, with the, the challenge first, which is, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians, uh, which has about 131,000 members and is, is, is a large chunk of primary care, does a survey every year. And recent survey results came back saying that 45% of our members are saying that if they had to do it over again, they wouldn't go into family medicine. That, that, that low? I would have thought it might have been higher well, based on national studies. Yeah, it's, it, but still 45% is still a big chunk of, of individuals saying, I wish I was doing something else. And when we, when we get into the meat of it, a lot of them are, are very supportive of primary care as far as what they believe it could be, but they're frustrated with what the reality is. And the other statistic is that about 49% of our members are showing significant symptoms of, of, of burnout, and, and that word makes me... Uh, it's really moral injury. It's moral <laughs> yeah. injury working yeah, but that, that's system. how the question was phrased. Right. But, but either way, that's telling us that, that people are just at their wit's end and they need something different now. They, they don't have time to wait. Well, this is an emergency, right? Because we're talking about, you know, on a national conversation, they're talking about, you know, Bernie Sanders talking about single payer. Uh, Donald Trump is talking about, I'm not sure what he's talking about. There's a lot of chaos politically, but the concern is, if we as frontline healthcare professionals, especially in the primary care space, don't innovate, have a voice, lead, someone else is gonna do it for us and it's gonna be even worse than what we have now. A absolutely, and so there's a lot of things that we can probably all agree on. Number one, no one is happy with the 15 minute or 12 minute or eight minute or seven minute office visit. The bean counters are. Well, absolutely, but part of that is because uh, at the rate that those visits are paid. And just one core concept here this, this morning, this afternoon, is that we have to get to where primary care is properly funded. So, so for example, in Colorado, looking at family physicians, internists, pediatricians, we do 51% of the clinic visits, and yet that is only 6% of the healthcare dollar. Mm. And in other uh, nations that have much better outcomes, people live longer, they, they have less ne uh, neonatal mortality and, and maternal mortality, uh, they're funding closer to 15%. 15% seems to be the magic number for sustainable, proper funding in primary care. How we get to that is difficult in the conversation. It's not just that people are asking for a raise, that's really not it at all. Uh, I think our messaging has to be that we need the funding to be able to do these 30-minute visits properly so that we can take care of all the issues, behavioral health, uh, 
different behaviors that people have that are contributing to their own demise to really bend the healthcare cost curve if we want to keep people out of the emergency room, hospitals, and other centers of waste. Well, this was our proposal at Turntable Health. Spend more on primary care, shrink the rest of the pie. Now, the downside is the doctors who are the rest of the pie, the hospitals, the medical device imaging, the pharma, mm -hmm. they get very upset when you try to eat a little bit of their pie. And instead of uh, that, they'll say, well, let's just grow the pie every year to four trillion and five trillion, and then everyone gets a little bit more. That doesn't work. The bottom line is we know that prevention primary care does work. We know what works even better is treating the social determinants of health. Exactly. Which we don't do. I mean, how would you propose, you're running for president-elect of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Yes, I am. Which is why you have the suit. Yes, yes, I, I have to wear the suit. I'm on the campaign trail, and, I, right. and I've got my lucky uh, Tabasco tie on because the national meeting this year is in New Orleans. And uh, it so makes perfect sense. I'm going to be that. there doing the keynote. Absolutely, looking forward to seeing you there. Now the glasses, though, you're rolling with some pretty dope shades. So, so these are these are Maui Chams, and and the reason that I wear sunglasses around my neck, my, my wife Teresa and I, uh, we we were not. Uh, 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 very uh, well-to-do when we were kids. And so we got married young, age 18. We had two babies in college, two in medical school. What? And yeah, it was, it was nuts. No, and so, that's not okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so we were, we were like on, uh, living on food stamps. And uh, so I was selling sunglasses on a sunglass booth in, in downtown Denver uh, to make money to be able to, to pay for, to get into medical school and, and then in Omaha when I was in Nebraska for medical school. And so I, I wear the sunglasses around my neck because it reminds me where I came from and I don't want to forget where I came from. That sounds like such a fake politician story, <laughs> but I'm, I'm it, sure it it's true. true. I've got pictures to prove it. It, I love it was it. crazy. You went to Creighton, crazy. right? Yes, yeah. Nebraska? Creighton, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so it's interesting because I think, I think having some adversity in your life, having to struggle like that actually mm -hmm. builds a lot of leadership tendencies. And I get the sense, and again, this is the first time we've really had a conversation, I get the sense that you're innately inclined to want to lead towards better change, which is something that I discovered only late in life. I was always a follower, a fearful, uh, passive-aggressive guy in the back throwing feces, mm -hmm. but not inclined to lead until I, I had it kind of thrust on me. Have you found that like physician leadership is in short supply? I, I, it seems to me like our leaders have failed us on every level. Well, what I find is most important is there has to be courage, first and foremost. And, and courage isn't just being brave. In fact, sometimes it's making the right choice despite trepidation, going out and, and so when I look at, let's, let's visit about the direct primary care movement. These are some really brave folks, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're saying, I'm going to quit the fee-for-service world. I'm going to contract directly with my patients. I'm going to figure out social media and, and do, do some business because they have to have some business skills and reinvent healthcare. And, and not all of those have succeeded. Uh, the, the pioneers are often the ones with the arrows. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's, it's very difficult uh, work, but it can also be very rewarding. In Colorado, uh, we started converting to DPC movement uh, several years ago. And let, let me interrupt for a second. So DPC, direct primary care, means you're disintermediating. You're taking insurance companies out of that equation. Patients are paying you directly, usually on a monthly basis, a fee, uh, uh, sort of membership type fee, and you're providing services directly to them. 
We do, and yeah. so uh, we try to provide a, a huge basket of services in my company. We include be behavioral health, for example. We have extended hours. We do IV therapy, sutures, casting, splinting. Who does the behavioral health in your clinic? So we have two psychologists, and uh, in your clinic, yes, and we include them as part of the product. So for that fee. Mm -hmm. Your membership patients get uh, access to all those things you just mentioned. And, and, and because, again, this is what we tried to do in Turntable. And what you said earlier, when you're a pioneer, you get a bunch of arrows in your back. That was the story of our lives. We got arrows in our front going out the gate, arrows in our back, arrows in our side. I'm still getting arrows about Turntable Health. But that was for us a beacon, a model. We saw Health 3.0 work. We saw this, what you're describing actually succeed and you said a lot of people have struggled and failed and you have to be an entrepreneur and a business this is all true there may come a time when we build an infrastructure where this is the standard of care and we're training our, our residents to practice in those kind of models instead of to fear coming out and having to click 9921 whatever billing codes in a 10-minute visit and rush exactly one of the most difficult things about dpc is is its genius is how simple it is and, and just explaining it to physicians, to my own staff, explaining it to patients. I'll give you an example, uh, and this is imaginary, but the patient comes in and says, Doc, I'd like you to bill uh, for this visit to my insurance. And I ask, why do you want me to bill your insurance? And they say, well, so they'll pay for it. Oh, no, no, they're, they're not gonna pay for it. We collected your $40 copay today, and now over the next several weeks, through a series of clearinghouses and, and different transaction sets, uh, coordination of benefits between your primary and secondary insurance, at the very end of it, you will receive an EOB, an explanation of benefits in the mail, and it will say, yes, this was a covered service, no, you have not met your $6,000 deductible, you owe the patient remainder $222.32, and then we will send you a patient statement for $220.32, and it will cost me $25 to do all the steps just to get paid. This is what I call, it is part of the medical industrial complex, but it is part of the measurement industrial complex too, because these same payers that we're billing are hiring tons of people to make sure we measure and quantify and click the right boxes and satisfy all the different quality measures and that sort of thing. And just complying with that takes not only, not only money, it takes a lot of money, you have to have staff to do it, but it takes time away from this, which is why we went into medicine, what actually helps, which is the face-to-face -face with the patient. Now, I'm gonna take you to task for something. I saw in your resume that you worked, you were on the board of directors for the NCQA, the National Quality Assurance National I, Committee for Quality Assurance. I, I was in the past, yes. Yes. What, so they are part of the measurement industrial complex in the sense that they do a lot of quality measurements. Now, I actually personally think you do have to optimize quality science, quality uh, improvement to get to health 3.0. But my concern with uh, organizations like that is, first of all, there's a lot of conflict. But second of all, there are quality measures that don't measure quality necessarily. but cost a huge amount in compliance. So how, what was that, that like? That is correct. So my history, my roots there, I was in paper and I saw that that was nuts. Yeah. And I wanted to be on the leading edge of what was then an electronic health record, not an electronic billing record. Mm. And so at the time, we were the second in the state to, to gain NCQA recognition. And I think there were some things that helped us along there. Like, like we weren't always providing 24 seven coverage and open access appointments. Adding that in did help my, my business model, help my patients, it improved the quality of care. Mm. But along the way, that movement lost its way. And so when we got to meaningful use stage 99 or whatever, and, and the, the metrics were just going crazy to where I started adding up everything that we had to do 
just to get through. And it turned out we needed an extra 40 hours a day. And, and they were wondering, well, why can't we get everything done? It's, it's physically impossible. Physicians started staying up late in my offices doing the so-called pajama time where they go home and work another two hours instead of being with their family. And, and so we had to back off from that. We, we came to the point where a few years ago, I said, we're not gonna do NCQA anymore. We're just, we're just done. We have to find other measures of quality. And there, there is an opportunity in DPC that's not there in fee-for-service. For one, uh, the DPC practice can define their quality with their patient. Mm. If patients aren't happy, they'll vote with their feet. They'll they go walk. somewhere else. Exactly. Right. And so there, there, there is definitely a mandate to have to build the best product possible in the marketplace to take care of people. That doesn't always exist in fee-for-service because the fee-for-service world, the insurance company or possibly the employer is, is my customer, right? They're the ones paying for the visit and the patient is a unfortunate uh, uh, casualty in, mm -hmm. in that whole equation. So disintermediating is a beautiful word because it, it exactly describes what has to happen. The other thing about primary care that I think is such a simple concept but people don't always catch is that everyone needs primary care services, right? I mean, Z, show me someone who has never needed to see a primary care doctor. You know, born, lives 99 years, dies, and never needs primary care. Never needs their blood pressure checked, never needs to get a cholesterol check, never needs to have a physical or, or get sick or, or needs stitches. I mean, that person doesn't exist, right? Mm. So if it's something that has 100% probability of occurring, we have to budget for it like groceries. Imagine if we had grocery insurance, how insane that would be, right? right? Everyone would want steak, no one would want hot dogs, and just the transaction costs of trying to do that would be ridiculous. Now for specialty care, hospital care, it is different. Not everyone needs six months of chemotherapy, not everyone needs their appendix out, not everyone is going to have an intensive care unit stay. Those things should be insured and require some sort of underwriting. But when the insurance companies got into paying for primary care with insurance, it really messed things up and it's been messed up for a long time. I like to make the, the, I mean, this is all correct. I like to make the analogy that other people make, which is your auto insurance doesn't pay for your oil change, mm -hmm. your tire rotation, your preventative checks. It pays for when you crash your car, when yes. something explodes, when it catches on fire. And that's how health insurance should be. It should be catastrophic. Now here's a proposal, and I'm sure you have ideas on how we can fix globally, because comments are saying things like, which is a common sort of um, uh, response to anybody talking about direct primary care. Well, now you're creating a two-tier system. People who have insurance and pay the membership fees for direct primary care, so they have insurance so that in case they get in big trouble, need to go to a hospital, and then they pay extra for this access to amazing mm -hmm. primary care, and that's how it was at Turntable, but, uh, are, then you have people with just insurance who don't have that, and then you have people with no insurance who are Medicaid and they're struggling, they're going to the ER for the primary care. Now at Turntable, we did something unique where we said, we're gonna take all these buckets, and one of the buckets is gonna be an insurance company, Nevada Health Co-op, which was one of the co-ops, and they're gonna pay our membership fee on behalf of their patients, and in return, we're gonna provide amazing service and keep these patients out of trouble, out of the ER and all that. We did all of that. That company then went out of business for reasons unrelated to us, and we lost 3,000 patients overnight. So the question, I'm gonna throw this to you, then I'll tell you what I think, but the question is how do you scale direct primary care in a way that saves primary care so that we all know we'd rather work in that environment. As a primary care doctor, I would rather work for my patient than for an insurance company or for clicking boxes or for billing codes. 
But how do we scale that nationally? Is there a policy you can think of? Is there a movement that we can build? I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, so I agree that not every last person is gonna be able to afford uh, a monthly subscription fee. Having said that though, a lot more people can afford it than I think the general public is aware. There's sort of a myth. For example, when we first launched, and I helped write the bill that, that declared in our state legislature that direct primary care uh, was not the practice of insurance. And so, and so we, we, we had that clarified in statute. Mm. And at the time, we were under the impression that we could enroll Medicaid patients. So uh, I had about 80 patients on Medicaid. These are people who qualify, means testing, uh, for Medicaid, and yet we're paying our monthly fee. And I would have critics say, well, why are you letting them do that? Or how can they afford that? And, and I would try to debunk the myths by explaining, some of these people were homeless, but yet they still had the $49 a month, which is what we charge. Uh, they had choices to make. They could buy a carton of cigarettes for $49 a month. They could buy alcohol. They could buy marijuana. There were other things they could You're spend their money on. You're in Colorado. I'm in Colorado. Yes, There's other things they could spend their money on. But they said, no, I want to buy health care. And then the state at some point came out and said, no, nope, we don't like that. We don't want you to do it anymore. But yet that same individual can spend money to go see a naturopath, to buy acupuncture, to buy chiropractic. But if it's a bona fide board certified family medicine physician, then somehow this was, this was taboo. That's nuts. It's absolutely crazy. And what happened is when we divested those 80 patients, we told them, I'm sorry, I can't see anymore. We had, we had a suicide. This was, they weren't my patient at the time. This is after the fact. And I had not had a suicide in, in five years of my patient panel. We had two end up incarcerated. We had a number that relapsed because I, I write for buprenorphine. And mm. so patients who couldn't find buprenorphine uh, providers in the Denver market were driving two hours round trip. In fact, even now, I have about 16 patients from South Dakota, Z. They drive five hours one way to come see me for their medication assistance treatments because they can't find a provider any closer than a five-hour radius. It, and they're all on the DPC product. Many of them are on South Dakota Medicaid. So, okay, I'm gonna unpack something of what you said because it's infuriating because it happened to us at Turntable. We couldn't see Medicare patients because Medicare has a rule that you cannot bill a Medicare patient mm -hmm. for direct primary care services and still ever bill Medicare outside of, of, of that. So well, we, it's complicated. I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but the bottom line is our providers had a choice. They could either opt out of Medicare, meaning they could not bill Medicare for two years, or we could not see any Medicare patients. That's correct. And we chose to do the latter because our, we wanted to give our caregivers flexibility if they went on to a different position or something like that. Now with Medicaid, what you're saying is when you were forced to tell these patients, you're willing to pay for my services, but I cannot care for you because the state is saying, because you have Medicaid, it's not okay that they bill you for this. It's the state that's treating them as second class citizens, not the DPC docs. That's the point. That's the thing. That's exactly it. And, and it was because our policy was designed with a system that is disastrously messed up. Toxic to it's, primary care. It's toxic to all care, in my mind. The only people it's not toxic to are spine surgeons who do unnecessary spine surgeries. <laughs> this is the perfect system for them. They're not on the front lines going, we need change, holding up signs. It's everybody else. Because mm -hmm. we don't have private jets, John. No, no. We don't get that. No. I it, mean, I have a model of a private jet. It's pretty ghetto. I think uh, one of the other telling signs, we go back 12 years ago, family medicine, internal medicine, pretty much 
a cottage industry, right? Mm -hmm. So in my town, no one works for the hospital. And over a series of, of a number of years, the vast majority of docs, probably 85% of them have sold out to the hospital system or they retired early mm. or they, they quit to take jobs in administration uh, where they were still physicians but not actually seeing patients. Mm. And then we actually, in, in Fort Collins, Lemmer County, had eight bankruptcies. And no one talks about this, but I, I had docs who, who were wanting to sell their practice for a dollar and were fleeing the state from creditors. And, and this isn't always reported in the papers. It's, it's like this, this silent shame, but primary care was just getting clobbered by the current payment system. And you're telling me, John, that only 45% of family physicians regret what they did. I mean, this is disaster. Well, that's last year's data. Maybe oh, yeah. this year's gonna be it's, even worse. You know, I'm rooting for a worse number this year, John. I mean, let, let, me, let me see here, because I'm, I'm looking at some comments. I mean, look at Brandy Epperson. My clinic day is cluttered with colds and non-compliant diabetics and multiple comorbidities. I get the same 20 minutes to see each and then spend another three hours to chart every night. If I didn't have a stellar nurse, no one would ever get a phone call back. It's exhausting. When I retire, she's actually, she's a military uh, nurse practitioner. I'm gonna go work for Starbucks. I'm so over primary care. Yeah, I can see why that would be so horribly frustrating. I'll tell you some things that we've done in my organization, and, and this is a little over the top, but I, I really wanted to build something different. We have a very robust medical village at Miramont. So we offer in-house lab, we do cell counts, electrolytes, or function tests, we have in-house x-ray. We do in-house mammography, see. In fact, we include that as part of our DPC package. I don't know if anyone who's doing In-house mammography? Yes, wow. in-house mammography. Can I get a mammogram? You can get a manogram. I, yeah, yeah, a manogram. I have rather dense breasts. Yeah, well, um, believe it or not, I, I'm not a big fan of the 3D MRI. There are some people who maybe yeah. need that, but for the vast majority of screening, my $20 mammogram is fine. And, yeah. and we have not missed a breast cancer in seven years. In fact, before we had in-house mammography, I would, yeah, pink tovers around the corner, right? I would sign one or two death certificates a year for breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And when we brought it in house, we, we knocked that disease uh, to the ground. And, and I've not lost anyone to breast cancer in seven years. But we also have co-located with us physical therapy, occupational therapy, the psychologist that I mentioned. We have an audiologist. I have a clinical pharmacist who manages our Medtronic's insulin pump program. Mm. Uh, and then we rent space, so they're, they're uh, uh, embedded with us, but not necessarily um, uh, on the same EHR to a naturopath, an acupuncturist, a chiropractor. So we have, we have this really robust uh, uh, service offering. And, and what that does is it helps keep people's care integrated. And, and so someone who's paying that monthly direct primary care fee they have no incentive to run to the retail clinic or go to the urgent care. And there are so many services that we can offer in-house that really help decrease reliance on specialists for non-specialty care. I don't send the spine surgery you mentioned earlier, low back pain. I don't. I send them severe spinal stenosis at a discrete level that the guy's going to end up in a wheelchair unless they get it fixed. And they get remarkably better and I maybe get them off their methadone. I want to tell you something. I have saddle anesthesia right now. Okay. and probably a severe nerve impingement, but I'm just rolling with it because I'm broke, all right? Number next, uh, I love everything you just said. That's exactly the model of Health 3.0, integrated, team-based care where everything's right there. Did you say pharmacist? We have a clinical pharmacist, clinical yes, pharmacist. yes. Clinical pharmacist, psychologist. See, this is the future of medicine, z -Pack. This is what we've been pounding on stuff. 
And then I meet John at a thing and I'm like, come on the show and tell us because you're actually doing it. People are like, well, turntable closed. Yeah, we were overwrought. We had too much overhead. We had venture capital investment. We're in downtown Las Vegas, which is a demilitarized zone. We're in a town that is health 1.0 minus. Like this place is as bad for medical innovation. The number one medical innovation in this town, John, is the hangover heaven bus. Wow. I know, and that's dope. I, don't get me wrong, that's dope. I, but, I can see why that would be successful though. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Fort Collins, Colorado. You're transitioning your clinic now to DPC, but what's even more exciting to me is that you're running to lead the American Academy of Family Physicians, which means DPC could have a national voice, but are you gonna abandon everybody else who's struggling in the matrix? Well, no, so uh, of our members, 131,000 members, only about 3% are actually active in, in DPC. So 97% are doing something else. They're in rural practice, they're working in the Veterans Administration, they're working for a hospital system, they're in academia, they're, they're is a, it's a very, very diverse membership. Mm. Uh, the, the common themes are that we have to have payment reform. By hook or by crook, we have to get 15% of the healthcare dollar. That's the only way to properly fund these 30-minute visits and to get the staff in to, to, to pay for the robust team. Mm -hmm. I don't mind really complicated, horribly complicated people. Uh, patients come in and I'm writing for their buprenorphine and there's no heroin in their urine. Yay, but there's methamphetamine. Uh, I used to kick them out. We don't do that anymore. Now I, I get to their root issues and we say, well, Jim, it looks like something happened here. What are we gonna do about the meth? Because the reality was in the past when I'd kick them out, they, they would just end up still being in my community, right? I mean, they're still my neighbor and they would end up incarcerated or they'd end up with broken families. Their kids would suffer. I found that it was really better, it was best to be able to have a robust team I didn't maybe have an hour to spend with them, but my psychologist could. And if I made conditional that they had to see the psychologist in order to get their next uh, uh, prescription of Suboxone, then they would go. So by having the tools, it wasn't a problem taking on the complex cases, right? But we have to pay for it. We can't do it for free. We can't do it for six cents on the dollar. It costs 15 cents on the dollar. And every legislature in our country Every employer, every insurance company has to understand that now. The time is now. Oh, man. I mean, this is what we've been saying, John Bender. Like, this is exactly the crap we've been saying since I came here in 2012. Is like, if you spend 15 cents, 16 cents on a dollar, you will save not just money, you will save human misery. This is, we have gone to war for less than we've done to ourselves with our healthcare system. If you can, keep, you, you keep that opioid, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, the person suffering from opioid addiction off opioids, and you have the, you have the capacity to go, well now they're, they've slipped and used meth, and you catch it, and now you can get them to the psychologist because it's contingent. If they're gonna get Suboxone, they're gonna have to see the psychologist. It's all right there. That person already trusts you. Yes. You, you said something. These are my neighbors. All healthcare is local. Do you get recognized when you go to Walmart or Target or wherever you go? Do, you, do your patients see so you there? So every patient 
of mine has my cell phone number. In fact, I've already texted several of them this morning. That's another innovation DPC. And I've had physicians tell me, oh, that, that's unethical or you shouldn't do it. That's, that's not true. Uh, it turns out you would think that I would be getting 2,000 texts a day. I don't. If someone's texting me a lot, Z, Mm. That's the universe's way of telling me, this is the person I should be focused on. <laughs> and maybe they don't have a medical problem, maybe it is a behavioral health problem, right? But that still has to be addressed. Yeah. And so once I, I work on their problem and address it seriously, the behavior goes away and they stop texting me because they get happy. When they know they have open access scheduling, they don't freak out because they know, well, I'll just go into clinic tomorrow and I can be seen. Uh, when they know they can um, uh, get a hold of me, they're, they're much more uh, happy with their care and so the, the punchline here, getting back to payment reform, is that this is the big battle. And if we win payment reform, we win everything else. So think about workforce. Why aren't people going into primary care? Because of everything that we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes, right? Well, if, if we have payment reform, suddenly this becomes a desirable specialty. 99% of people are saying, yeah, I'd do this again. Well, that fixes workforce. Now students want to go into it, people want to train for it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it, it also helps with social determinants of health. So right now, if we screen for social determinants of health, but I don't have a team to address it, 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 it's kind of like in the past when they said, well, don't screen people for mental health because if you find out they're depressed but you don't have a place to send them to, it's not solving anything. Mm. Well, well, we did both. We're screening now for social determinants of health. We have these little orange freesia tablets and when people come in, uh, they have to ask questions about their neighborhood and do they feel safe at home and do they have food security, et cetera, et cetera. But now we also have resources that we can point them to. Uh, and, and unless I have a team that can address it, a well-funded team, it's useless and, and worthless to even screen for it. You know, you said it. If we can transform how you incentivize care, you mm -hmm. will get the care that we deserve instead of the care that's incentivized currently, which is crap. We will stop burning out our doctors. It's not burnout, it's moral injury because right. we're serving two masters, more than two masters. We're serving our patient, we hope. That's why mm -hmm. we went into it. We're serving our own interest because I wanna get home and spend time with my daughter. I don't wanna click boxes at home. And you should. And I should, <laughs> and I should be able through all the effort I put into my schooling and my training and my loans to pay those loans off and live in a middle class lifestyle where I'm not worried about going bankrupt running my practice, and then I, I have to serve the administration or whoever's my employer. I have to serve the government. I have to serve the lawyers who could sue me if I don't order unnecessary tests. That creates a conflict. You, you were in the military, you were flight surgeon mm -hmm. in the Navy. Yes. Thank yeah. you for your service, by Thank the way. You. Um, you served in Kosovo as well. I did. You must have seen people who suffered moral injury from things they had to see in war or things they had to uh, witness children and, and, and that sort of thing. Do you think it's different for doctors when we have to go through this or nurses when we have to go through this? So we have a very chronic pervasive stress. I mean, the fortunate thing, I went to Kosovo, that was for a limited period of time. I knew when I was going in, I knew when I was coming out. And, uh, and, and fortunately for the US and the rest of the world, that particular conflict actually resolved rather nicely. It's, it's one of the few we've been engaged in, in the last couple decades that mm -hmm. has resolved nicely. Uh, there is no end in sight right now uh, for most physicians. They're, they're sitting there, they're suffering, and they're, they're trying to find a way out. But the truth is, if we organize, if we rise up, we can actually force the system to do what has to happen. And, and it's, it's a, it's a courage proposition, and I realize that because a lot of people 
are, are scared, right? So if, if we're sitting in a room and someone says, uh, malpractice, you know, oh, we get all, or we say, or oh. Or macro. Yeah, macro, or, or, or Stark, or yep. hospital CEO, right? Okay, so, so you know, penalty, negative payment, <laughs> right. uh, whatever that is. Uh, well, the reality is, though, we, we have to start engaging these as, as the moral injury that you've described and saying, you know, that's wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. We have to start doing what's right. So when, when people start going and standing in the place that they don't want us to, uh, uh, when we start going and standing in the place that others don't want us to, it's gonna be uncomfortable for everyone at first, but over time, that's actually how we win that space. And, and so my, my platform is that there has to be courage and resolve. We can't quit, we have to keep pressing forward, we have to organize, speak with one voice, and then demand that the payment reform that we've been asking for take place because that's the only way to get us out of this mess. I agree on every single point. I would say this, I think that if we grew our primary care base, we made it sexy to go into primary care because now you get compensated and you also have the time and the space and the team and the resources to take care of the patients the way you're doing it or trying to do it as best you can mm -hmm. in Fort Collins, Colorado, then what we can say is, all right, why can't we cover everybody in the country in a way where we cover the catastrophic through government subsidies, whatever it is, to get that catastrophic high deductible insurance? For people who can't afford the deductible, we subsidize that with whatever, maybe mm -hmm. it's a savings account. At that point, some of those, that, that uh, deductible or fee goes to direct primary care Yes. So maybe it's 50 bucks a month, maybe it's 100 bucks, depending on who you're picking and what you're doing, what their services are. They keep you out of trouble for the most part. If you get in trouble, they shepherd you through the system. They're the ones, if your patient gets hospitalized, you are there on the phone figuring out what's going on, coordinating care with the hospitalist, never letting them fall through the cracks. That quarterback, that central piece, the bottom of the pyramid that's holding everything up is us. If we can pay for that in a way that's efficient, you drop costs overall, you improve outcomes, you stop burnout, you solve the primary care shortage and the doctor shortage, and you lower costs in a way that the country can now afford it. Now you have universal coverage that isn't socialized medicine, that allows entrepreneurship and innovation because these direct primary care doctors are competing with each other for who can do the best care with the best service at the best cost, and you have fixed the problem. Why hasn't it happened? Can we do this? Will you help me do this? Absolutely. So some of the things to consider uh, with what you were just saying, our nation has a $21 trillion debt and it's growing. I used to say 19 trillion and someone corrected me and said, no, it's 21 trillion. Economists tell us, and I don't want to put your, your uh, followers to sleep, but economists tell us that half of that is due to medical waste. If we just, you know, you know the, the guy who gets three MRIs because he goes yeah. to three different hospital systems day. saying the same exact same thing. Same thing, 20 right? CT scans and then he gets lymphoma. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, so if we just reduce the healthcare waste, there's actually enough left over for everyone in the system. We don't, we don't even have to find more money. There's already enough money in the system. It just has to be spent differently. And, and I realize there's entrenched interests that are gonna fight that tooth and nail, but we have to be brave as primary care and, and just take that on uh, headstrong anyway. I'm gonna read a comment, then I'm gonna ask you a question. All caps, Jeanette Scalise. All caps is always a trigger. Here we go. Right. 
Why don't physicians all join together? Stop selling your practices to big hospitals and take back what you went to school for. Help and care for the patients. Get involved uh, what ZDog is doing. Join together and make a physician ZPAC and crush the insurance companies. This is a perfect lead-in to my question. What role do insurance companies have in all of this? I work with Nevada Health Co-op with Turntable. They were actually a great partner mm -hmm. because our incentives were aligned. They wanted to prevent illness and save money for the premium they were charging. And they were on the Obamacare exchange. So we were seeing patients who hadn't had coverage in decades. We were their first care and it was beautiful. They were getting subsidies from the government to come see us and they had wraparound catastrophic insurance. I've talked to people at Aetna, they're trying to work on things like this. People at Humana are working with Iora Health, our old partners on the Medicare Advantage space mm -hmm. to uh, uh, use that primary care engine and pay for it and then give the engine back shared savings if there's actually savings. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think we have to overthrow the legacy players or can we work and subvert them this way? Well, it's a complicated question. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, there is always uh, a role ongoing for a payer, uh, you know, whether it's universal coverage, single payer, or multiple for-profit payers. Someone has to has to organize the underwriters for that complicated care, the, the specialist care, as we, we, we alluded to earlier. For primary care, uh, if, if my, my message would be either work with us or stand aside, mm. because mm. direct primary care, as it grows, and other systems uh, like it grow, that disintermediate insurance companies, the insurance companies, um, I think, have, have have largely ignored DPC. You gave some great examples where they're not, but for the most part, they have ignored it. But that's not necessarily a problem. So, for example, I'm still contracted in in, in network for Blue Cross. Mm -hmm. And you say, why why would you do that if you're doing DPC? Well, you know, if I do order an MRI and the patient has insurance, they they want to pay. The, the small amount. Now, sometimes it doesn't always work out that way because of some weird things that happen in the insurance world. But for the most part, if they have insurance coverage, it's going to be to their advantage. And if I'm not in network, anything I order then suddenly doesn't count, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. so, so there's a value to me. But think about from Blue Cross's standpoint. So what happens when Bender uh, started doing direct primary care? Well, from their standpoint, I just stopped sending them claims, right? They don't know why I stopped sending them claims. All they know is their claims experience got really good, right? Now, hopefully, they'll take some of that money and reduce premiums. I don't know that they will. That's, their, that's what they're supposed to be doing. You know, there's this medical loss ratio, right, and right. if they're above a certain amount, they're supposed to be giving it back. It hasn't always worked out the way that the Affordable Care uh, Act envisioned it. But I, I think that there are some other interesting models I'm seeing. There, there's a group called Health Rosetta, uh, out of San Francisco Dave Chase, yeah. that is, is training brokers to, to eat, sleep, and drink, uh, the, the DPC model. And they're oftentimes self-insuring with, with these big reinsurers like uh, Munich Re and that that come in, not traditional health insurers. They're telling employers, pay for the first $10,000 of every employee's health care costs. And, and for some employees, you know, they'll hit 10000 right away. Others don't go to the doctor all year and, and they'll have a, a goose egg. But more employers can self-insure when they have uh, a DPC product and, and a reinsurance wraparound. Now, that's not traditional health insurance. And so that model could challenge and possibly uh, dethrone some of the traditional players in the time to come. Let, let, me, let me reiterate that because this is important for the ZPAC to understand. It gets a little wonky, but it's so important. Self-funded employers are big employers like, you know, 
GE, Amazon, IBM, IBM, but also smaller employers like here in town, Zappos, mm-hmm. uh, smaller employers, Switch, uh, some of these these tech companies, self insured employers means that they are directly paying all the medical costs for their employees. They're not shunting it to a third party. A third party may administer the claims, but they are on the hook for your medical costs. Which is scary for an employer, but the studies are showing, and there's some great data from like Clint Flanagan's group, Nextera, which is my home state of Colorado. I know Clint well, yeah. Uh, They worked with Digital Globe and with Left Hand Brewing Company, and they were able to show significant double-digit reductions in the healthcare spend for these employers. Now, 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 so let's understand that a little bit more. That means that, let's say you work for Zappos, Mm -hmm. all right? Any money you can save Zappos and provide better care for their employees means they're on the job more, there's less absenteeism, they're spending less money, their costs go down. Direct primary care where the employer says, I'm going to pay you guys 50 bucks a month on behalf Mm -hmm. of my employees, and our employees will use you for primary care or your group. And in return, you're gonna show us that you provide amazing care, amazing service, amazing quality, amazing experience, and see if the costs shrink. And this has been the fundamental proposal, I think, of many DPC, the larger DPC groups like Iora. We can save the people who have the most skin in the game money, which is the employer who's paying the bill. So if we could do that as part of an overall reform, payment reform plan, Government changes how Medicare, Medicaid uh, 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 pays, and that commercial insurance plans change how they pay. The employers decide they're going to directly partner with direct primary care practices, and their direct primary care practices are going to compete with each other for these monies, meaning we have to innovate. We have to be entrepreneurs to a degree, and if we don't, well, then we join a bigger group that is led by entrepreneurs, and we just take care of our freaking patients. Do you see that as a vision that could be fulfilled? Well, that is, that is what's happening uh, in, in these little microcosms, and it's growing. So it, it is a vision that can be fulfilled. Just to, again, go back to the American Academy of Family Physicians, where I, I have the most data, six, seven years ago, we had, we had less than 1% of our members doing this model, right? Now it's at 3%, but it's growing exponentially. And if you know anything about exponential growth, those are the businesses to watch. I love it. Man, I'm excited for the future. People have been asking me, well, you talk a lot about Health 3.0, how do we get there? Mm-hmm. We're talking about how to get there. This is one path. What does an ophthalmologist do? What does a heart surgeon do? As this ride grows, you're gonna see, I think the number of specialists are gonna contract a little bit, but they're gonna be practicing at the top of their game, focused on high volume, centers of excellence, doing amazing care. We're all gonna be integrated in a way where if it's not physically integrated, we're gonna be technologically innovated with EHRs that are not glorified billing platforms, but rather are beautiful, intuitive devices that take everything automated off our plate, use AI to inform us, and then let us do this. And I predict you'll see that more in the DPC space than in the fee-for-service space. It's really hard to get the large behemoth electronic billing records to change their model, that's not gonna happen. They're, they're at the mature phase of their product life cycle. Uh, it, it's like trying to make a flip phone better, okay? They're, they're stuck. <laughs> but in DPC, you know, that's where the glass phones are coming out now with <laughs> yeah. the HR, okay? Yeah. They're more likely to be writing apps and have that interconnective functionality uh, to, to talk to Bluetooth-enabled biosensors, et cetera. You're speaking to the, you're preaching to the choir because we built our own with Iora EHR mm-hmm. and it was 
a beautiful, clean system. It didn't do billing codes. It just did a narrative. Didn't have to. It was problem-based. It allowed our health coaches and other non-clinician teammates to write directly in the note. And we had a relationship with our patients, so getting sued was much less likely because the patients understood that you cared. You, you made them feel that because you did. And you, and you could care because you had the bandwidth to do it. I think that's part of the moral injury. We want to care for every single one of our patients like they're our family member. And when we're unable to do that, when we don't have the tools, the resources, the autonomy to do that, the payment model to do that, then we get hurt inside and it's unconscious. It's not like we go home going, I wish I could take better care of my patients. We go home and going, I don't know why I hate everything. I don't know why I went into this and spent all this and I can't spend time with my daughter. That's how it manifests. So it's a moral crusade, John, like that we have. We, we, the troops have to be rallied, they're there. They have to rise up and the time is now. We, we can't wait any longer. This kind of happened once before. When we had the failed HMO model in the 90s, a lot of physicians sold out, were bought out by hospital systems, and within a decade, they, they were back in private practice. I'm predicting that there will be a, a swing in the pendulum. At some point, the bloat is going to get to where the hospital CEOs will, will, will start looking at uh, physicians like you and I and say, hey, you know, we're, we're losing a half million a year on you. And, and they are, because when I do my job right, people don't go to the emergency room as much. They don't get readmitted as much, right? They don't receive unnecessary procedures and three extra MRIs. Uh, but the payers look at it and, they, and, and the employers and say, you're saving us a half million a year. And I think in the end, that's the group that's gonna win because they're the ones that have to pay for it. You go where the people have skin in the game and that will destroy the legacy pillet players who are parasites in many ways and we can transform the parasites into useful parts of the system. And it means going, doing exactly what you said. And that's why I was thrilled when you agreed to be on the show. Dr. John Bender, I'm wishing you a tremendous amount of luck on this AAFP election. I don't know who else is running. I don't want to take sides, but I'm just wishing you luck. We have great people running. Fortunately, uh, we're all friends. And, uh, that's and, great. And so, I don't even have a vote. The, the Congress of delegates will decide. And, uh, I, I'm going to set up some Russian set bots feet. on Facebook <laughs> to influence this election. <laughs> and, and you know, and I got and I, I got to say because direct primary care near and dear to my heart, we were a hybrid sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But but I think this DPC model is a transformation, a total reboot, a total blow it up and rebuild it from. It scratch. It has to be blown up and started from scratch. Agree, 100. You don't. Get across the Atlantic by building faster boats. You get across the Atlantic by building a freaking jet. That mm -hmm. is disruption. That's true change. And that's what we need to do. The time has come. John Bender, thank you. I want to tell the ZPAC, by the way, that uh, if you like this sort of content, hit share. Share it with everybody you can. Yes, We please. now have a new model for funding the show, which is subscriptions. So Facebook allows us to charge $4.99 to people who are interested, and then they get exclusive access to live one you know, sort of conversations with me. If you guys are into that, do that if you like this sort of stuff. Um, because we're like a membership model. Right. For five bucks a month, you can have unlimited access to this guy right here. Look to, at this to head. the best content in healthcare. Reformation. I didn't even pay in to say that, but I'm going to take it. Uh, guys, we are out. Thank you for being with Z, us. Z, thanks for having me. I love it. Peace. Thanks. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.
it, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.